I was just picking you some flowers. Men still do that, don't they? I'm not out of date, am I? What's up? Welcome to Honky Tonk Men, a double feature podcast where we're going through the directorial filmography of Clint Eastwood. My name's Ethan. I'm Jake. And we are the Honky Tonk Men. Um, this week, we're talking about Play Misty and The Tenet. So Jake, talk to me about why you paired The Tenet with Play Misty. Yeah. Um, I picked The Tenet. Because like Play Misty for me, it is a movie where the director of the film has cast himself in the movie to be basically tortured by his uh, subconscious fears and anxieties, uh, some involving women. I think like when 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 I rewatched these movies, it's it's such a it's such an intentional choice that both of them are the leads of these films. Like they are both explicitly trying to say something about their own lives and how they see themselves. So I was really excited when you paired them together. Uh, but do you want to kick it off with play Misty? Yeah. Uh, play Misty is Clint Eastwood's first directorial effort. And he plays a fucking DJ in yeah. Carmel, which is, you know, his real hometown. Yeah. And, uh, he gets in, with a chick who's just kind of fucking crazy. She's just a little crazy. <laughs> She's just a little uh, bonkers, and she kind of tortures him. And it's a, you know, it's kind of like a Hitchcock riff, and it just has great vibes. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I kind of want to talk about is when you when you read about the movie or like you hear people talk about the movie um, from the era the thing that always comes up is, you know, it's, it's just like Hitchcock or uh, like uh. John or, you know, Clint Eastwood says like su- supposedly John Cassavetes said to him, uh, you know, the only problem with your film is it doesn't have John, Ca- it doesn't have Hitchcock's name on it. Uh, <laughs> what do you, do you, I mean, I know like it's a Hitchcock riff in the sense that it's like you have this female figure that's, you know, wielding a knife at certain points, like sort of tra- like a traumatizing this man or whatever, like a psycho type thing. But like outside of that, do you see any other sort of like reasons to connect this to Hitchcock? No, I, I think just in the early 70s, <laughs> people were just like, oh, it's a thriller. That's that's Hitchcock. Yeah. You I, know, I, mean, I feel like because I'm trying to think we haven't really had like the Hitchcock acolytes like the true hitchcock riffers like brian de palma like kind of hit the scene and show us like kind of reinvent what a hitchcock riff looks like Mm -hmm. so i feel like yeah for like critics in the 70s they were probably just like oh yeah he's doing a thriller like hitchcock yeah that makes sense i mean because like stylistically like you don't have this um like when you watch a hitchcock film you get the impression that everything is under like tight control every every single setup every moment is has been like rigorously storyboarded whatever 
But with this, there is like something that I think both of us really like about Clint Eastwood, which is like there's this very lackadaisical, um, relaxed feel to it, um, which to me is almost like the exact opposite of something like a Hitchcockian thriller. Yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood is just, he's not the kind of director that Hitchcock is. It's like, there's kind of no suspense in any of his movies that I can really think of. Like, it's almost, I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's like moments where I think maybe he's aiming for suspense, but I just feel like, yeah, like you said, he's just too chill to like kind of pull off like a really like edge of your seat suspenseful moment. The, for me, Play Missy is more of like a, uh, it's more Kafka-esque than Hitchcock-esque. You know, where you're just kind of watching this guy um, just get put through the ringer and kind of have no idea, like, why it's happening to him. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Um, that I think, like, the relaxed feel of the movie can almost feel a little bit in sort of, like, it can feel a little in contradiction with the thriller moments because i mean like we're, we're gonna we'll obviously talk about breezy you know in a few episodes but breezy mm-hmm. is almost like the early climax of like what if i just made a hangout movie in my hometown versus needing a hangout movie in my hometown to eventually become a thriller to sell tickets or something yeah i mean it i think play missy for me is very much a calling card movie yeah. Kind of just like them being like, look, here's what I can do. I know how to make a movie that, you know, audiences will react to and I'll be in it. You know, everyone loves that. <laughs> and I mean, he pulled off. I mean, it is a really interesting movie. More for just, yeah, like the. Uh, just kind of for like what it says about Clint Eastwood rather than like what it says about sexual relations between men and women (laughs) right i mean i think like before we even get into you know what this movie says about clint eastwood like i think from like we were saying with the calling card movie aspect of it it's like from a production standpoint like that's exactly what it was it's like he got he wanted to direct from like the time he was on rawhide and like the best he would get on these sets was like they would maybe let him do some second unit stuff and essentially he like pitches it to the studio they agree to it and then call his agent and say, yeah, we agreed to it, but also we're not going to pay him. And Clint Eastwood essentially was like, okay, whatever. I'll prove myself. And then yeah. like called a shot and just did it. Yeah. And I mean, he, he pulled it off. I mean, this movie looks incredible. You know, he's clearly showing that he has an eye. I mean, the way he shoots Carmel is like, you know, the way, Joseph von Sternberg shot Marlena Dietrich. He just, he loves this town. I mean, it's just like, check out how fucking awesome my town looks. Yeah, and I mean, like that that was obviously important to him. Like, the, the, the screenplay originally took place in Los Angeles, but he moved it to Carmel. And I mean, that's probably partially, you know, something about how comfortable he feels in his hometown, being able to use the locations he's familiar with. But it's also like, I think he knows it's beautiful and he loves it and he wants to show it off. Yeah, I mean, more movies should be filmed there, I think. <laughs> we should make a movie in Carmel. 
I would love to. I mean, I, w- I kind of want to move there. I would love to move there. And Clint's house in this movie is just... Inc- it's amazing. Immaculate, yeah. I mean, it's got like the huge windows overlooking just the sea, and it's like on a cliff. It looks like it's growing out of the cliff too, like the way the interiors like incorporate like the mountainside, like inside of it. Yeah, it's very earthy. So, I mean, from like, obviously, like we talked about in the intro episode about how one of the things that like we both love about Clint Eastwood is the way that he very explicitly is investigating his own star persona. So with this being his first film, do you think that he's like, do you think that he's actually like involved in that project from the get go? Or is that something he develops later? And if you know, what do you think? I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the first shot, like the first proper shot after the credits that 100%. it's deliberate. Cause I mean, it is a helicopter zoom in onto Clint Eastwood looking at a painting of himself. So <laughs> I think that's pretty much him saying, like, just so y'all know, like, this is going to be my project for the next, you know, 50 years. Yeah. And, I mean, I think in then not just about his star persona, but involved in, like, self-criticism. Like, yeah. Like, this movie is obviously, um, I don't think... Uh, you need you uh, you don't you don't need me or Jake to tell you that this is not some feminist masterpiece, <laughs> but it is a it is a movie that um, you know intentional or not like it's pretty explicit about the leads you know womanizer pro- like he's a womanizer and that's causing him problems and for me this movie is all about like Clint asking himself the question is my is my womanizing going to catch up with me like is this going to like lead to everything in my life falling apart? Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is like just kind of the perfect nightmare for someone who just can't stop fucking women. It's just, what if one of them, uh, (laughs) you know, got you back. Right. And I mean, like at the time, you know, he was in a, an open marriage, but it was only open on one side, his, and (laughs) I think it's like, and he also is dealing with, uh, like in uh, in in a Clint Eastwood biography I read, it talked about how like in some places in the world, Clint Eastwood was basically like a member of the Beatles, where like people were oh, yeah. really chasing him down the street. So that's where you get the like, okay, that's like the fear of these like actual women. But like at the end of the day, like people even in the film are like, bro, you are the one who's sort of like causing all these things to happen. You're ruining your relationship with Toby. You keep hanging out with Jessica Walter, who is very clearly crazy. Yeah, I love his uh, his kind of like sidekick at the radio station. It's always just like, man, you gotta chill with all this shit, <laughs> right? Like he at one point, like they're talking about the woman who wants to, uh, like maybe buy his show for like another TV or radio program. I can't remember. And he, uh, Al, his other the other DJ is like, you know, basically asking if he's gonna hook up with her. And, and Clint's like, no, he's, he's, you know, she's like a grandmother. And Al's like, that's never stopped you before. So like, it's like, he clearly, and then Al's like, you know, uh, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, which are, you know, words of wisdom to live by. Yeah. I mean, two, two great phrases. What do you think of, uh, Jessica Walter's performance in this movie? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty great. I mean, she really embodies 
I mean, it's kind of like uh, similar to like Charlotte Gainsbourg and Lars von Trier's Antichrist, where it's kind of like this woman who's just like playing the embodiment of like a misogynist's fear of women, <laughs> where it's just like, <laughs> I mean, she's truly like has all the worst stereotypes that like someone could think of, of like, you know, the crazy bitch. Right. Where And she's just, yeah, I mean, she's really great. And the way she turns on a dime from, like, chill to just absolute psycho in a matter of seconds is amazing. And seductress. Yeah, I mean, that's something that people are almost, like, hilariously unaware of that uh, that even worked on the movie. Like, the one thing, there's this uh, documentary about the making of the movie, and the one thing you hear from, like, every single person that worked on this movie, they're like, yeah, I mean, I read, I read the script and I mean, it was just, it was just so real, you know, it was just yeah. so real. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't Jessica Walter say like, she's like, I was just playing like the girl next door, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. She said like, I wanted it to be a surprise when she was revealed as crazy, which is nuts because I think like the second she- scene she's in, it's already like you are out of your mind because it's in the second scene. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about when they meet. Yeah. So that's one of the yeah, best scenes. Yeah, when they meet at this uh, Clint's uh, usual watering hole where his uh, mentor, Don Siegel, plays the bartender. And she does... Uh, him and Clint are doing this kind of fake game to get her attention from the other side of the bar, which you pick up that they probably do this, like, you know, every night. So yeah, the Clint- Probably in real life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably real. So they're doing this, yeah, fake game that has like these convoluted rules that make no sense. And <laughs> I think at one point it says you're playing Copenhagen rules. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great little kind of uh, bait and switch because you think that Clint is manipulating her to get her into bed, but she knows that this is his spot and she's been waiting for him, and yeah. she's you know that that's her modus operandi is to get him in the sack. Right. And into and the, her life. And that's something like when, when she goes, when they, when they leave the bar, they go back to Clint's house and she reveals that uh, this was all a play on her part. She knew he was going to be there. And Clint frames himself underneath her as she's standing over him and oh, she's yeah. just towering over him. And it basically reveals that he thought the power, he thought he was pursuing her. He thought he had the power, but really she had the power over him the entire time. Yeah, it's a really great... I mean, that is, I guess, probably the most like Hitchcock moment yeah. in the movie where it's like a very good, just kind of like visual cue to show you how things have changed. And I love Jessica Walter in this scene where she's just like, it's okay, baby, it's going to be no strings attached. <laughs> she's like, I'm just trying to fuck. And he's like, all right, that sounds great. Yeah, in that case... Okay. In that case, and then you know, of course, uh, that was not the case. And she does, and and but she reveals pretty quickly that you know she's not at like even though she said it's going to be no strings attached. This is not ex- like not actually what she's looking to get out of this. I mean, there's a string of maybe like the three craziest things a woman has ever done in a movie in this movie, um, like from sending him a stuffed animal just to quote, keep an eye on him (laughs) (laughs) to like 
just showing up with groceries and uh she has like the great line delivery that's like uh the thing the things a man will do for a pastrami sandwich when he didn't even invite her over <laughs> and it's just like oh, oh this is my house <laughs> it's, it's what if i had company so great yeah yeah and then you know showing up to his house uh, wearing nothing but a trench coat and this is <laughs> she does that like after she's already clearly showed to him like i am insane and violent and he's like i still can't help myself <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, this is like, it's around that time where he's starting to get this relationship going again with Toby, who is this woman he clearly loves, but he has basically destroyed the relationship by sleeping around on her. And he lets Evelyn, Jessica Walter's character, into his home, and she knows about Toby and finds out he's going to meet her, and she attempts suicide just to try to keep him from meeting up with Toby. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Toby brings a great uh, great wrinkle into this as another uh, element of it being a misogynist classic. Yeah. Because just like, I mean, so clearly, like the uh, mother and the whore, Madonna yeah. and the whore complex. Toby is like just, you know, portrayed as like the perfect, like, you know, earthy art, painter girl it was just like Clint could settle down with if he just you know stopped fucking around on all these hoes and then yeah of course uh Jessica Walter who likes things no strings attached is a crazy violent woman right I mean I think I do love the scenes with Toby and as far as like you know with this movie being his first directorial you know effort and he's showing that he's not just this tough guy action star there's plenty of scenes that are just like it's like damn clint like you're just kind of a romantic dog like yeah they're like strolling on the beach uh making love in the forest like garden Uh of eden style which i mean and that stuff i love that stuff in this movie and it does feel and it maybe feels like wrong to call that romantic in a film that like climaxes with clint vanquishing his enemy by like killing her with a punch but... uh, yeah yeah I, i've never seen the movie love story from 1970 but i imagine it's just like two hours of shots like him and toby and like just you know walking hand in hand in the beach with like pretty music playing and like the super 70s zoom ins i still haven't seen 10 but that's what i always imagined 10 was when i was a kid Nah, dude 10 rocks yeah, I mean, it, I, I mean, I, his other movies rock, but like, uh, I, I, uh, that's what I. When you have that image of her like running down the beach, I thought it was just like a dude and this hot woman walking around the beach. Is what I thought. No, I mean, Tin actually would be a great one to pair with this because it is, it is also just like Blake Edwards, kind of like his, uh, his midlife crisis of like, goddamn, like if I keep cheating on my wife and getting drunk, it's gonna kill me. That's an ongoing concern for Blake Edwards and his yes. filmography. <laughs> From 1979 to, you know, 1991, that was just all he was thinking about. Speaking of zooms in Play Misty, I think, like, when she attempts suicide and he basically, like, lets her stay at the house, there's the amazing zoom where they're, like, sitting in bed together and it does this zoom out to reveal uh, Clint's face. And it's basically, like you could play the Curb Your Enthusiasm music over uh-huh. it. Like, he's totally, 
he's totally screwed himself and he's like messing he's not gonna get to go see toby and he's stuck with this insane woman who tried to kill herself in the bathroom yeah no i mean he becomes the the man with no name again for a moment (laughs) in that shot because he's just laying in bed with just like the most brutal snarl on his face just Mm -hmm. like man i can't believe this chick tried to kill herself in my house it's so good so like i think uh both of us really love one sequence in particular in this film which is the monterey jazz festival sequence oh yeah i mean how could you not i mean it it's such a it's a weird sequence because i mean the movie just kind of just decides to stop for a few minutes and just like and change styles. Yeah, change styles. Like, let's just listen to some jazz, and I'm going to go D.A. Pinterbaker on y'all and just, yeah. you know, zoom in on the stage and on the crowd. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, and not just play some, like, full performances of songs. Yeah. Like, and, I mean, that's obviously something that's pretty personal to Clint, too, with, like, before he made it as, like, a movie star, and even, you know, after, he's, like, just hanging out at jazz clubs and blues clubs, like ripping on piano. And like, he would go on to, you know, do that, uh, that documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, the, uh, Mm -hmm. about the blues where it's just him interviewing like famous blues people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's another great scene that, you know, kind of fits his thing about, you know, changing up his star persona where he's just like, I want y'all to know that I, I really love jazz. Like, I'm not just a c- tough guy who shoots guns. Like, I fuck with jazz. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, I mean, I believe it. I mean, then he makes Bird, like, you know, 20 years later, which is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, I'm so, that's one of the ones I'm most looking forward to that I haven't seen from his filmography. Yeah. I mean, and speaking of, like, all the things that, like, Clint loves and, like, Carmel, jazz, whatever, like, one of the coolest uses of Carmel to me in this movie is when he puts it together that Evelyn is the, like, uh, the new roommate that Toby has, and he realizes, like, Toby's in danger, and uh, Clint does all this, like, cross-cutting between Evelyn holding uh, Toby hostage and, like, cutting her hair off and Clint just zooming down Pacific Coast highways like one of, and it's like you don't see enough chases that take place on the Pacific Coast Highway, the one of the coolest highways, you know, in America. Yeah. And Clint uses it beautifully. Like it's so sick. That's I mean, I love that uh I love that sequence. Yeah. And I mean, the editing is just so good the way it's just, you know, Clint's zooming cars just like moving the story story towards its climax. Mm-hmm. And just yeah, the cross cutting is amazing. Yeah, and then he gets there, and like we said before, he he kills <laughs> he kills Evelyn literally by punching her over over his home or over whatever home it is, and uh, she like lands in the ocean and dies, and then yeah, and then uh, the 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 theme music starts playing, and he walks off with Toby. Yeah, I mean it's one of the most like explicitly like kind of like a nightmare logic scenes where it's just like yeah, you just punch her into the ocean, now she's gone, like. <laughs> It's cool. Like, yeah, that that's how you, I mean, you know, if you got a chick who's, you know, ruining your life, just right. make sure you punch <laughs> her directly into the ocean because the water will take her out and you won't have to worry about it anymore. I love that it kind of, it's so like, uh, it's almost like the Robin Wood thing of like, uh, you know, the, you know, cultures, fears or whatever, the return of the repressed and then like the return uh-huh. of normalcy. And it's literally like, 
okay, what if all these women, what if one of these women that I keep having sex with is going to be crazy and destroy my life? Well, he, he kills her, and then he's literally immediately able to walk hand in hand with Toby again. Yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's so great. It's just... Well, gl- glad we got that out of the way. Goodbye, <laughs> Evelyn. <laughs> She, you know, after we got rid of Evelyn, that was the only thing really keeping Clinton and uh-huh. Toby apart, right? It wasn't that he kept, you know, uh, cheating on her all the all those times before. Yeah, she is a great uh, Robin Wood monster. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything else you want to say about Play Misty? I mean, it's just a good time. It is. You know, even with the like bad vibes thriller stuff going on it really is just like you're mostly just hanging out with clint you know walking around this beautiful place in northern california listening to jazz throw it on yeah throw it on if you uh if you think clint eastwood is a cool looking guy this movie is a real treat because it's one of uh the movies where he's looked the coolest yeah i mean you could tell he really wanted to get his hair right in this (laughs) one he's thinking like no one's done it right before. They're the real see. reason Clint Eastwood started directing. Uh-huh. Um, so is this, to you, Jake, a Clint Eastwood masterpiece? Uh, not quite, no. But it's awesome. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Um, I think it's an awesome debut. Um, it's not... I did like it more when I rewatched it than the first time I saw mm-hmm. it, but it's still not that, like, ultimate Clint level that some of his other films are at uh but i love it it's a good movie good vibes for the most yeah. part um let's uh let's talk about the tenant they killed him on the sounds good the rising sun but they missed you for me and that old devil moon play anything goes and memphis and All right, Jake, we are back with The Tenet. What's The Tenet about? Not not The Tenet. The Tenet. Uh, the Tenet is a film by Roman Polanski. That is a, about a um, dweebish little Polish man <laughs> <laughs> moving into a, an apartment that has really fucked up vibes that's uh trying to turn him into a woman yes i mean i think uh like something you've said about this movie in the past before is that this movie is basically a jerry lewis movie which (laughs) i think is so true it absolutely is and it i wonder if it's maybe even intentional because even the title the tenant is such a Jerry Lewis title. Like it yeah. just fits right in with the, <laughs> the bell boy and the Aaron boy and just like, you know, the guy. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, yeah, this movie is just basically, I mean, it's, you know, Kafka esque as much as play Misty for me is, but it's just like, yeah, it's just a guy just <laughs> keeps doing, he keeps messing up. That's what he's doing. Everything's going wrong for him. Well, yeah. And also like, the way he seems scared of everyone around him is a very uh, Jerry Lewis thing. Like it reminds yeah. you of the ladies, man. And I mean, there's so many gags in the movie, but like, I think like the entire premise is like very comical where it's mm. like, 
oh, it's it's so hard to find an apartment in Paris uh, that when he finds one that he maybe can afford, it's because a woman just tried to kill herself there, and he yeah. still he still has to pay more for it than he wants to. <laughs> and then yeah. because he feels guilty about it, he like goes to the funeral and ends up like getting caught up in all this like weird shit. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it is a classic like uh roman polanski paranoid thriller but just like in the guise of a comedy where it's it's got all the same you know like a conspiracy of you know evil satanists basically yeah i mean yeah it's crazy it's just like he's kind of made the same movie like many times but this one's probably the funniest yeah, like as a member of the Illuminati, he has distinct <laughs> access to this uh, this worldview, this way of being. But I mean, like, I think one of the things that really sticks out to me about this film is that it's such a bleak take on living in a city, and specifically Paris, which looks like a trash dump in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it is the just like the grayest, brownest vision of Paris you could ever imagine where just everything is wet and dirty and people are all mean and sad and you just kind of stumble around and hope that no one beats you up yeah I mean like everyone is mean to him like his neighbors hate him and the friends he has are terrible like he hates he they're terrible to hang out with they're loud they're obnoxious they take pleasure in frustrating their neighbors uh-huh. it's very much like if you live in a city it's like you're imprisoned with those around you rather than being in a, in a community with them which i mean like that's kind of the the opening of the movie with like the sick crane shot which i mean speaking of things being like hitchcock it's like it opens with like going over all the windows of the apartment like rear window mm-hmm. but like whereas in you know rear window it's like you get the impression that oh, each of these is like a story. And like, you know, there's there's tons of things going on in Rear Window, but like it sort of mm-hmm. frames each one like it's a screen. But for uh, the tenant, it's like each of these is like a cell and everyone yes. is stuck here. And like each of these might have, you know, a cabal of weird French freaks that are conspiring against you to... Which I mean, and he's in like, and in that opening crane shot, like it dissolves like some of the people into him, like in yeah. The, and so like, it's not even like he can be separated from the cabal. Like at the end of the day, especially with like the structure of the film, like he's always just a part of it. Yeah, and then um, like a movie that has a similar title, Tenet, it is kind of a circle where you realize <laughs> you know. The woman so that they, it's a bit of a temporal pincer movement. The woman <laughs> that they're trying to turn him into is him, and it yeah. always has been. It's yeah. like, so yeah, I mean, it causes quite a wrinkle, and just like, yeah, I mean, you, you get this scene where he visits the woman in the hospital who's, you know, tried to commit suicide, and then that you realize at the end of the movie that that was him just mm-hmm. under a bunch of bandages. What do you think of? What do you think of what he's trying to get at with him becoming this woman? Like with 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 you know, not just like taking on the figure of a woman, but like there's so much about, you know, losing yourself in this movie. Like he has that really great monologue when he's in bed with Isabella Johnny 
um, where he's like, you know, if I lost X body part, would I still be me? If I lost my head, would it be me in my mm-hmm. head? So like, it's something, you know, to do with, you know, losing yourself. Can you have an identity, you know, when you're, you're connected to all these people or what, but like, what do you think it is with this woman? I really, I'm not sure if I know. I mean, this movie is pretty mysterious to me. I mean, there's like, you could just give it like the worst faith reading and just be like, you know, this is about, you know, society trying to emasculate strong men and, you know, rip them of their masculinity. I mean, I, I, I don't even think that's like that ungenerous well, of a reading. Yeah, well, I mean, why would you have good faith in Roman Polanski? Well, yeah, why would you have good faith in Roman Polanski? But also like the, like if, if Play Misty is about someone thinking, is my dick going to get me into trouble? Like the tenant is more like, am I going to be able to get it up? Because mm. he goes, he goes to when he finally has the chance <laughs> to have sex with Isabella Johnny that he's like been, you know, deceiving this whole time to be able to uh, form a relationship with her. Like he falls asleep, and it's like if there's some like fear he's trying to exercise, it's that he won't be able to deliver for all these women who want him or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Or it's just like, you know, he's like as a famous. Virile and <laughs> toxic masculine man such as myself, and you know, you know, <laughs> Roman Polanski likes to have sex. This is something we know about him. He's Even a huge when he's, fan. he is a also a notorious uh, wife cheater. So I'm wondering if this is like you know this is him kind of like saying this is what my uh, my critics are doing to me you know i'm just trying to live my life as a natural man yeah which is what he thinks i mean yeah which i'm sure is what he thinks and it's like and the way you know woke culture is going (laughs) right now everyone's just trying to get me down and you know take this part of me which is you know you know we know to be you know evil he's kind of an evil man yeah so people are just trying to sand off his rough edges and get him to conform to this boring French society. Right. Which is interesting too, because like, it's not as if he's strong at the beginning of the film, like from the first scene when he enters and meets the concierge, like he's presenting himself as meek and weak, you know, like, yeah, he's like, Oh, like I didn't get the door or like, Oh, sorry. And like, he's always bending over backwards for those around him um, to survive in this place where everyone hates you. Yeah. Which is why I think maybe, that is somewhat of a bad fake faith argument that I think the movie's more complicated than just like, you know, they're trying to stop me from living my best life. It's like, I think he's, he's afraid of stuff in himself that maybe doesn't fit with his idea of masculinity. Yeah. That that's more of what, I mean, I think it's like, to survive in this context, I need to be this strong man that wants to keep pushing me deeper and deeper into the like weakness and femininity that I mm-hmm. have um, inside of me or whatever. And yeah. as the movie goes on, he takes on more and more characteristics of the, the, the previous tenant, you know, with the way that with what she smokes, he's smoking her cigarettes with her order at the cafe at the cafe. Um, and then eventually to her clothes and eventually to her suicide attempt. 
Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> the casting of Roman Polanski is just, as himself, or as this character, is just so perfect because he has such a weird-looking face. Very mousy. So, yeah, so when he starts, you know, getting the dress on and making all these weird faces and putting on lipstick, it's just... It, yeah, it's just a... He just has a weird face to look at. And it fits the vibe of the movie. Very yeah. good. I mean, I think, like, uh, you know, him losing himself to that, like, there's, like, the gendered aspect of that. And then, like, he starts connecting it to all of these sorts of... Uh, you know, mystical and religious sort of symbols. And like, I think like one of the key scenes in the film for me is when he, he goes to the funeral, uh, and, um, he is at this Catholic church and the priest, like, it's like, at first it's like normal, normal funeral message, like what you would expect to hear. And then, and then the priest is like, and then you're going to die and you're going to go be with the worms in, in the ground. And he has to get out. And it's like this, like, like that the Catholic church, which I mean, like Polanski, I know that when he was, you know, on the run, you know, as a Jewish, you know, Polish person um, under Nazi rule, like. Oh, the first uh, time he was on the run. Yeah. Like these. Uh, <laughs> <geez>. <laughs> uh, but when he was when he was like fleeing the Nazis, uh, like Roman Catholics took him in. And uh, there's there's a story of uh, like the priest coming by and like basically testing him on like the catechism. And the priest just said to him, like, yeah, you're not one of us. And so hmm. it's like that that the church, you know, the Catholic church represents this other, you know, societal institution that's seeking to like separate him from himself, to tear him apart, to take away his identity. Yeah. I mean, you definitely get the sense over through his whole filmography that he feels like a person who doesn't belong anywhere. I think that that might be what, um, uh, inspires these, you know, ideas of conspiracy because he just yeah. feels like you know he doesn't fit in places and everyone's kind of working against him what do you make of the egyptian symbols <laughs> well the uh, first time i watched it i was just like N i have no clue but uh i think we talked about it before the podcast about how he kind of becomes a mummy yeah at the end so i mean Right, which again is like this process of uh, sort of like uh, preserving the body. Um, mm -hmm. So like it connects all back to like the fear of like getting your body parts separated, who you really are, blah blah blah. blah. Yeah. And like obviously uh, the the previous tenant was like a a specialist in things hieroglyphics. In hieroglyphics, that's right. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's the term. Yeah, um, and then the, maybe probably the best image from the movie also fits into this stuff which is like i i don't know if you'd call it a dream sequence because i guess there's not really dream sequences in this movie since it kind of just reality shifts so much from just like yeah. shot to shot even mm -hmm. but there's that scene where he's looking out of his window and like all the other tenants of the apartment are like doing like some sort of ritual sacrifice on this little girl yeah uh, who would like, I guess like her and her mom had been like making too much noise or something is mm -hmm. like set up earlier, but they put a mask on her face that is Roman Polanski's face. 
and then she's got like a jester hat on and it's yeah. just it's a great it is, image. It's so frightening. Yeah, it's an incredible image. And those and those people, I mean, they're all they're all part of the system of like uh people are complaining about them and like someone comes to his apartment at one point at get trying to get him to sign a petition that's like complaining about them and they almost present themselves like oh like we're neighbors we're friends don't we want to like have this common enemy and like it really gets at this idea that it's like the only way that roman polanski could have you know camaraderie with the people around him would be if like they just hated the same people yeah i mean it's definitely like the most like holocausty vibes of the movie where it's like yeah these people are like going door to door so we can round up these troublemakers. And it's clear that, you know, his character is like relates to the people that they're trying to kick out of the apartment more than he relates to, you know, the people with the petition. Right. Which right. is, you know, what makes it even scarier when he's like, Oh, those people are getting <laughs> rounded up in ritual yeah. sacrifice. So like, what the fuck are they going to do to me? Yeah. Who is it that like shits on his front porch at some point in the movie or like on his welcome mat? Do you remember this? I don't remember that. <laughs> I think it might be like the woman that like is the troublemaker or something. I can't remember now. Uh, it's very disgusting. It. He tries to like wipe it up with like a <laughs> postcard or something. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a horrible attempt. I mean, when he tries to, I, that's part of like the gag stuff that's hilarious. Like my personal favorite being when all of his terrible friends leave trash at his uh, at his apartment, and the next day he's trying to clean it up, <laughs> and he's carrying the trash down the stairs, and he's dropping like so many bananas that it looks like a Mario Kart track, uh-huh. and it's just like he he just it, it is like the Jerry Lewis thing of it's like look at this fucking idiot not being uh-huh. able to do anything right. Yeah, and it's just so perfect, like, one piece of trash at a time. As he goes down the steps, it just kind of leaves a trail of trash, and then the landlord is just like, what the hell are you doing? This is a respectable business. Mm-hmm. That's a, after the great party scene where his, he has his friends come over, and they're just the most obnoxious people of all time. and they're Flipping tables over. Yeah, as soon as they come into his house, they start moving all of his furniture and pissing in his sink. Because <laughs> they don't want to. Because everyone at the apartment complex has to share the one restroom. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just like, yeah, he's getting in trouble because of his friends just don't. They just don't respect him enough to keep quiet. Yeah, I mean, his one friend. I mean, one of the more like unsettling, strange moments in the movie is when he's at his friend's apartment and he asks him something to do the effect of like, you know, how do you find, you know, this situation with your neighbors? And he's like, I do whatever I want and just turns the music as loud as he can yeah, to like piss the, off neighbors. The music is just like a marching band. And <laughs> just like, everyone wants to listen to. Yeah. Just like, you know, great marching band record on vinyl. It just turns up so <laughs> loud. And it's just like, yeah, I do this every night. My neighbors are used to it. Yeah, and like I think a neighbor comes and says something to the effect, or there's some neighbor he has that's like, please, my husband is sick and dying. <laughs> and he's like, buzz off, creep. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and that guy is the, I mean, that is the portrayal of 
normal, healthy yeah. masculinity in the movie. <laughs> I mean, there's a, I think like another one of my favorite sequence in the sequences in this movie is when, uh, the, uh, woman who, uh, had tried to commit suicide. I, I, a friend of hers comes to town to visit her and has no idea that she's, you know, taken her own life. And so Polanski basically takes, uh, him out for drinks and stuff. And the guy is telling him how he's like, yeah, we would have been together if I had just told her how I felt. And he doesn't know that she was a lesbian. And this guy is literally like, she's his long lost love. And he doesn't even know that she doesn't like men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, a cast of pathetic people. If, if anyone who's not like in on the conspiracy is just like another like sad sack, like yeah, Polanski's character. Yeah. And uh, Isabella Johnny's character is just weird, man. <laughs> What's her deal? <laughs> what is her deal? Goes to see Enter the Dragon with him, which is, uh, I mean, that's like, you know, him shouting out his dog, Bruce Lee. And yeah. they're in they're in the theater and she's totally down to like start making out with him, which he, uh, his first action in the makeout is one of the most aggressively weird things I've ever seen anyone do when they're making out, which is he reaches around her back to grab her breast mm -hmm. and then you get the another amazing shot where it, as he's grabbing her breast he kind of looks back and there's just a french guy with dead eyes just like kind of <laughs> slack jawed and drooling watching him <laughs> injure the dragon's pretty boring too so it's like it's fine dude it's not yeah. it's not boring i mean when really hate the, the fight dragon? scenes are pretty cool i don't hate it i mean it's just like not a great movie it just has a great star doing some cool fights do you think bruce lee is a great star i think he could have been yeah but he, he didn't never really, really have a shot he didn't really have a great movie so yeah it, it was interesting to me when i finally saw enter the dragon and i i thought it was like you know sort of like i mean i guess it is a classic but it's like i mm -hmm. thought it was going to be great and i think i watched it around the time i was watching some like earlier hong kong jackie chan movies and mm -hmm. i don't know if this is controversial but I much prefer the Jackie Chan Hong Kong movies. Yeah, I mean, or just like the Larkar, Laukar Lung, yeah. like uh, 36 Chambers movies are just, but Enter the Dragon is shame. I mean, it just doesn't, Enter the Dragon doesn't have a director. That Robert Klaus is just kind of a nothing. There, yeah, there's some cool like layer moments in that. By lair, I mean like villains lair, not like yeah. onions lair. It's some but, cool um, sets. Cool sets, like, and it's like, the at the period it's shot, you have like enough good technicians, it's like gonna be looking pretty cool. So, mm. but back to the tenant. Um, yeah, I mean, we need to be careful because uh, coming for Bruce Lee is like that puts you puts a target on your back, yeah. as we saw with the uh, Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're orbiting around a lot of Tarantino stuff right now. Uh, -huh. uh with 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 uh his presentation of I do love his presentation of Polanski in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is like, yes, for some reason reason, hot women want to be with him and it yeah. makes sense to no one. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean he looks like little Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> but he was a rock star. He was a rock star, he made great movies. Yeah. That's the director of R Rosemary, however, Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> says it. I'm living next door to the goddamn director of Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. Um, do, you, do you like The Tenant more than Rosemary's Baby? Um, 
it's hard to say. I feel like Rosemary's Baby is just like uh unbearably sad movie. It's very sad. It's just like it's hardly even a horror movie because it's just so upsetting. Like it it like kind of reaches beyond genre. The this I I agree with that from like a like a sequence standpoint or whatever. Like you know, you're mm-hmm. not like afraid from a moment to moment basis or whatever, but the image <laughs> of Satan, you know, having sex with her. The, like, mm-hmm. and it's like a quick shot. And then the next day when John Cassavetti, I mean, this isn't horror either, but like when John Cassavetti's the next day is like, yeah, you were passed out, but like I had sex with you anyways. And it's like, what's the difference, yeah, dude? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it is. It's horrible. horrific more than horror as yeah. a genre. So, yeah, I mean, the tenant is one I could, I would rewatch more because just it's funny and it looks really awesome despite looking it's you know ugly but beautiful yeah it uses its ugliness as a technique like mm-hmm. it's it's one of those where i do think probably one of the funniest things in the movie to me the thing that actually made me laugh out loud when i watched it was at the end after he's fully donned you know the appearance of the previous tenant um mm-hmm. and he's like you're all trying to get me to kill myself and then he goes and he jumps and you know he lands and it looks like he's broken his leg and then he crawls back up and someone says he's gonna jump again and then he jumps again yeah because it's done so well because he's like he's hit the ground and then you're kind of like the camera's on like the spectators a little bit more and you realize he's crawling back up like in the background and then the camera kind of like goes back up to the window and you're like he just jumps again. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. And then obviously it ends with him, you know, the Mobius strip thing, like you said, where it's like, it just starts over. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic, just a uh, Polanski punchline ending where you're just like, it's all just a big joke. There he is. He's yeah, very nihilistic filmmaker. Uh, I mean, like how many movies that he's, has he made where it's like off the top of your head that it's like in with a punchline? Uh, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, The Ghost Rider, uh, Ghost Rider, um, what is it? Uh, Ninth Gate. I actually haven't seen the Ninth Gate, but there. Ninth Gate kind of rocks. I need to see it. Uh, I'm not a huge Johnny Depp fan, not for you know any recent reasons. I've never really liked him, but like uh-huh. rewatching Public Enemies, I was like, okay, or watching Public Enemies for the first time, I was like, okay, I need to watch some of the ones that I've avoided on his account. But, yeah, he's pretty good in Ninth Gate. But I mean, like, and the punchline is always nothing matters, and you were you were mm-hmm. wrong to try. Yeah, like, the punchline is always like, yeah, the the protagonist kind of looking around, being like, oh right, yeah, I'm just a fucking idiot. Why did I even? Why do I bother? Right, or like the Ghost Rider, which I, you know, if you don't want to know the end of the Ghost, I mean, Chinatown, it's like okay. You should know. You know the, the engine. Yeah. Um, but like with Ghost Rider, if you don't want to hear it, just skip 15 seconds forward. But it's like he continues to care. And in the last minute of the film, he's like put the whole thing together. And he like finally understands like the real conspiracy of it all. And as soon as he figures it out, he goes outside and they have him killed. And his pages that he used to figure out just float in the wind. Yeah. Which is like, is that an accurate reflection of reality? Probably a lot of the time. But, like, as far as, like, what you're trying to put out in the world and what you think about how the world works, it's like, damn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as much as, like, what 
how these movies end, but kind of like the tone in yeah. which they're presented, where it's like Chinatown could end where it's like it's not a punchline. You know, you have the same ending and it's, it's like tragedy. Damn, that's tragic. But you get that forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, and you know that that is Polanski saying like this is just how it's gonna go when you try to fight this. It shit. is how it is. And quite frankly, I think it's funny that people are trying. Right. Are we doing, do we talk about whether it's, <laughs> I guess it doesn't make sense to ask if it's like, you know, we're just asking if the clip movies are masterpieces. Yeah. I would say this, Tin is probably some sort of a twisted masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> it's sick and twisted. From the, uh, the, from the twisted truly mind. twisted mind of Roman Polanski. Yeah, he needs to do that for the next movie he makes. Which, how old is he, dude? Like, how is he, like, I mean... He's old. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen any of, like, the, like, French movies he's made in the last few years. I'd probably watch them. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, I mean his, his most... I mean, we've talked about it before. His My favorite Roman Polanski movie is Bitter Moon. And it is probably the, the like, most grotesque out of all of them. Absolutely. I would need to rewatch that one. Does that have end in a punchline? Kind of. I think so. I don't want to speak authoritatively on this since uh-huh. I haven't seen it in over a year. Um, yeah. But uh, I just remember it's like one of the most like the movies you're watching where you're like it kind of it's like the evilness of it is like seeping mm-hmm. into your body while you're watching. <laughs> yeah, for it. sure. Yeah, I mean that's one of those movies where you're just like, oh man, I guess maybe love isn't real. <laughs> For for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, I mean, like, you know, in the two hours that that movie's on, you're just, like, you're kind of with him. You're like, God damn, like, yeah. But then when it's over, I'm like, nah, nah, love's, love's real. <laughs> well, it's he like, got You got me there for a second. Well, we need to find a reason to talk about Bitter Moon on the podcast, because actually I'd like to, I'd like to get into that. Mm-hmm. But anyways, this has been the Honky Tonk Man, episode one. Uh Play Misty for me in the tenant. Next week mm-hmm. we will be back with High Plains Drifter and the Hitcher. Yeah, we're gonna be drifting and hitching. Drifting and hitching. All right, see y'all later. Yeah, I was just picking you some flowers. Men still do that, don't they? I'm not out of date, am I? Okay.